and welcome to this week's 1201 podcast. My name is Callum Watts and today I'm here with Ollie Walwyn. Hello everyone. And Bradley Alsop. Good evening folks. And this week we've only got uh, one major topic of discussion but I think it's uh, probably one of the most shocking that we've had for uh, a number of years and I have to say that that is uh, saying something. Um, in terms of its implications going forward for British democracy. Um, of course, I'm talking about the uh, the assassination, the murder, the killing of uh, David Amos, MP, uh, MP for Southend, uh, who was stabbed multiple times after surgery in his constituency just last week. Uh, he is the second MP to be killed uh, since uh, in the last five years. Obviously, this is very unusual in the UK. Uh, the previous person to be uh, murdered was Joe Cox, of course, the MP for Batley and Spen, who was also killed at a surgery. Uh, this has obviously sparked uh, a huge debate about um, security. Um, it's also transparently uh, an attack against British democracy. It, it's uh, quite a cherished part, I would say, of our democratic processes that it's relatively easy to speak one-on-one -on -one with your MP if you want to, um, usually at, at, at a surgery where they are publicly available. And I think one of the reasons why surgeries are now being looked at so closely is because, of course, that's the only that's why these two individuals were killed there. Uh, is because everybody knows that's where they're going to be and the public can get very, very close. Um, so I think it's probably going to lead to an increase in security at surgeries themselves. I think after Joe Cox was killed, uh, there was um, some, something like a, a five times jump in the amount of spending uh, on uh, security for MPs. This will probably have a similar impact, but also, you know, is are we going to see um, a transition to MPs having a permanent security detail? Uh, are we going to see them at less public events, have them become more remote? These are uh, concerns I think people are voicing at the moment. Um, of course, is it something to worry about at all? Because you know, political leaders like Boris Johnson and um, and, uh, and uh, Keir Starmer have security details themselves. I you know, it was at a uh, Labour Party conference a few weeks ago, and um, there was uh, Keir Starmer's security detail, just a couple of gentlemen walking behind him. You know in a sort of menacing kind of way. Um, and he's still relatively accessible himself. Uh, presumably, the state would consider him to have a adequate level of uh, security. Um, so do you think we have something to worry about? Obviously, it's a very tragic event, um, Bradley, but there are also potential implications for the way we do business in politics going forwards. Um, should we be concerned? Yeah, so I think there's a few things here. Obviously, the death of of of, a, of anyone, I think, you know, regardless of whether you can consider them a political opponent or not, is to be mourned. Um, you know, and the thoughts go out to the to the family. Um, 
of this tragically murdered MP. Um, I think, I think it's it's clear. You know, I was listening to a, um, I think it was a Guardian podcast today, and they they'd interviewed a number of MPs. Uh, one of them was Diane Abbott, um, and a few others as well. And it's quite clear, you know, we, we've got two murders in five years of, of members of parliament. Um, and, you, you know, you, you talk to MPs. Um, Diane Abbott pinpointed um, the expenses scandal, which I think was, was 2009, 2010, something like that, um, as, as a point in which she she felt that, that things turned a little bit. And then she also pinpointed Brexit is when things got particularly ugly. Um, obviously, there's there's always been you know rude things said to MPs. There's been uh, you, you know all, all sorts of nasty stuff that would come through an inbox or or you know back in the day a, a literal letterbox for MPs. But I, I think there is a sense amongst the, the parliament uh, amongst parliament uh, parliamentarians that things have got worse in recent years um, and that they perhaps feel less safe in recent years than they have done. And I think. You know, I, I do think there needs to be more security for MPs, actually. I do think that needs to be reviewed. I think after Joe Cox was murdered, I think there was an increase in spending on MP security, but clearly not enough has been done um, if, if we've seen only five years later another murder. I think that there are dangers to that as well, though, in that I think it's absolutely crucial in a representative democracy that those representatives are there's a transparency and an accessibility to those representatives. You know, the MP surgery, I think, is an absolutely crucial bit of work that MPs do. You know, they, I mean, there's something really powerful. You know, these are the these are the 650 most uh, powerful people in the country, effectively. You know, par- Parliament is sovereign, and it, effectively, Parliament can do what it wants. Um, and, you know, so these are the MPs that, that are there. So they are effectively the 650 most powerful people in the country. Um, at least officially, if we ignore the power corporations having all the rest of it, but uh, so you know, I think there's something really powerful about being able to meet one of those people that you that you would have maybe you didn't elect them, but you know you you got to say in that election. Something really powerful about being able to go into a what is often a little village hall or or a church hall or something and and sit and talk to them, even if it is only for a few minutes. Um, at, at various other ways in which you know MPs are, are, are do public events and things like that. I, I think it would be really damaging to a representative democracy to lose that. I think it's really important that we have that. So that needs to be balanced with the obvious increase in security that MPs need. Um, so yeah, there, there, there's two there's two difficult things there. I think that that need to be balanced. Um, but but clearly more needs to be done to protect MPs, and MPs seem to quite quite clearly feel that as well. Ollie, uh, how do things look from? where you're sitting do you share this concern about security what would happen if you felt if your mp uh, would you be sort of more intimidated if you saw security someone with a with a gun perhaps uh standing there at a surgery or, or is it is it almost normal these days to see that sort of thing um in my eyes no i think that would be something uh, quite memorable and not something I'd expect if I was going to speak to my local MP. Um, it's, it's it's an interesting one. I, I think that could actually put people off. Um, and I think, you know, if you were just seeing them out and they were doing some kind of uh, visit somewhere locally or they were doing some kind of feature in the local media and you spotted them out on the street and maybe saw uh, some security guards or maybe even some armed people, that would not be 
what I would call normal, especially uh, here in West Yorkshire. Um, yeah, I, I think this whole um, this whole incident, I, I mean, it's not an incident, it's, a, it's an attack. It um, has caused quite a bit of... Um, quite a bit of debate, I suppose, around some quite interesting topics. So, um, for example, in the mainstream media, uh, a lot of people have been critiquing uh, Andrew Lorena's use of the word scum and whether we should uh, kind of dial back our language when we're talking about our political opponents. Um, she's got quite a lot of stick for that. But uh, And there's also um, the ideas of ending anonymity on, on social media to reduce the amount of... Um, trolls online and hateful and abusive messages which is another topic but i don't think we can seriously talk about these if we're not talking about um the hateful and polarizing media that we have in this country uh, which actively fuels this kind of um hatred and potentially even violence towards people um as i've seen in the past few days um you know some of the most um kind of attacked on, on social media and in person and uh, um, MPs are, as Bradley says, Diane Abbott and also Jeremy Corbyn in his time as well. And I, th I still think he receives a lot of uh, very hateful uh, and unwanted um, kind of comments and and that kind of thing towards him. So, you know, it's it's interesting um, and it it's, it's certainly raised some some interesting ideas. But um, yeah, I don't think we can talk about it without talking about the role of the, the media uh, and the billionaire press uh, without without that. What, what do you think, Bradley? You've got your hand up. Yeah, I, I think um, I think you're right. There, there's, so there's the sort of, I suppose, a bit more specific or, or narrow issue of, of MP security and, and what that means for, for representative democracy that I talked about. And there is this wider discourse as well that, that, that's happening as well about civility and politics and and i suppose really what we're doing is having a conversation as a nation at the moment about what what is acceptable how far can you go in in a, in a democracy in terms of disagreeing with your political opponents um and i think there are dangers to this debate as well because i mean i, I think there's a fairly clear rule in that you know any form of pretense to political violence is, is absolutely reprehensible you know it, it's never okay in a in a modern democracy, to resort to political violence, um, or, or you know, violence to to enact a political point, maybe an argument for armed revolution if you live in a you know a complete dictatorship or something like that. But that could, whilst there are many issues with our democracy, it's clearly not the situation we have here. So political violence is, should you know be completely off the table for any legitimate movement or or, or, or political figure. So, so that, that's quite clear. But then there's all sorts of grey areas within that, you know. So you mentioned the the, the Angela Rayner sort of scum comment, and so you know, I think some people tie that in with the you know the sort of things we've seen, horrific murders of MPs. Some people tie that into a wider discourse that that would also rope in Angela Rayner's comments and say, oh, well, you know, that that's all part of the same issue. Fair enough, the the murder of MPs more severe, but it's all part of a, a similar culture. It's all bred from the same culture, and I think that's dangerous because. Um, I, I think there's a, a MPs should never have to fear for their lives. They should never have to fear that they face violence, but they should they should be held accountable by the public. Um, and I think that often what you know the, the rhetoric you have at the moment is that um, you know you, you need to be able to dis you know people are going to disagree in a democracy. 
Um, people have strongly held views on both sides, um, and we and we you know we need to find a way to politely work that out. I think there's a couple of issues with that because one, I think it's a bit naive to think that all Tories do what they do out of some sort of really well thought out, um, coherent ideology that you know they've sat and thought about the issues and genuinely believe cutting twenty pound off universal credit is genuinely the best thing for this country. I think it's a bit naive to assume that that's exactly what's happening and it's everyone involved in that discussion is is coming at it in a fair way. I think there'll be plenty of times when Tories, many, many not all, but many Tories will know full well the impact of what they're doing and they just don't give a shit. So, I think, yeah, so there's that element to it. I think also, fine, people can disagree on ideas um, and, and, and that's the point of a democracy that we can do that. But... We can't, you know, just saying, just leaving it there, saying, oh, well, we need to, you know, we need to have the debate and then, you know, politely do that and leave it at that. That ignores the consequences of what some people's views are. So, you know, again, for instance, the universal credit, you could just sit there and say, oh, well, you know, one person believes we should keep it, one person believes we should get rid of it. Um, The person thinks we should get rid of it forms the government, so that's what's going to happen and and we just need to leave it there. That ignores the reality of what will will happen as a result of that, uh, as a result of that cut. You know, people will, you know, fa- families will go hungry uh, because of that cut. Families will be cold in their homes because of that cut. Um, so I think to, to just sort of paint it as a disagreement of ideas ignores the reality of the consequences of those ideas. And that that's the exact reason why people will call Tory scum for what they've done because of the absolutely disastrous consequences of austerity and, and, and various other policies. None of that comes close to justifying political violence. But what I do think it does justify to some extent is not being beholden to this sort of gentlemanly politics where there's a debate in Parliament, um, you write a politely worded letter to your MP, and then if it doesn't go your way, you leave it at that. I, I think there's absolutely a right to protest these individuals, to to challenge these individuals and, and make them uncomfortable in various ways. Um, what we need to be really clear on and 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 doing some of that might well breach what some commentators and some politicians see as, as civil, polite political discourse. Um, I think being able to do that is absolutely crucial to to a democracy. But what we need to be absolutely clear on is that that never strays into any form of violence, any form of you know discrimination based on protected characteristics, and and, and none of that sort of stuff. So I think there to sum up, I think there there are there's a really legitimate conversation to be had about what the limits of protest are in a democracy um, but we need to be careful we don't go too far towards restricting our ability to hold MPs to account I think it's important to to, to actually look at the way that um, the discourse and public debate and the way that MPs are addressed and treated as changed and protest as well. Um, I mean, the contrast to me, I think, would be looking at Peter Mandelson uh, during the New Labour era. Uh, in he in when he was um, when he was in government, there's a very famous incident where uh, someone threw some green goo over him. I think it was an environmental protest, and. Um, you know, he was, yeah, to 2009, um, he had green custard thrown over his face um, by someone protesting about a third runway. And, you know, he, that that was an attack. It could have been acid, something like that. 
he just kind of went back into the building, cleaned himself up, came out about sort of 15 minutes later, you know, um, and, you know, that person, I think they just got, they got a caution, the police caution as a consequence, something like that. Contrast that to now where you actually have uh, MPs being, uh, and, you know, of course, as the example as well of uh, John Prescott being, being egged as well. Now, obviously, these are extreme examples, but these, at the time, they weren't considered threats to democracy or really particularly dangerous. So John Prescott, in his case, um, you know, just laughed about it, really. You know, I think he famously said that when he went to speak to the prime minister, because he, he said that uh, he felt this egg on the back of his head, so he turned around and punched the guy. He said, well, Tony Blair, you've, uh, you told me to connect with the electorate, so I did. Um, contrast, that's now where MPs are being, you know, stabbed. Uh, and now you, you have to kind of question, you know, what has changed? You know, MP, and, uh, and I don't think, I honestly don't think really, I, th I think Ollie's right, actually. I don't think this is, the discourse itself uh, isn't led by politicians in the, in this respect because politicians have been calling each other scum for centuries, most likely. Obviously, the most famous example you can go back all the way to the nineteen sixties and an Iron Bevan, um, you know, calling the um, uh, calling the Tories lower than vermin. You know, MPs weren't getting assassinated then; there wouldn't be another one assassinated until uh, I, I think the nineteen eighties. Which was the last assassination, of course, by by the IRA. Uh, so, you know, so what has changed? I think, uh, I think Diane Abbott's probably right. I think to to a degree. I think uh, the expenses scandal, uh, I think, dramatically undermined trust in politicians. Um, of course, you had uh, the uh, banking crisis at the same time which has subsequently been used as an excuse to impoverish large swathes of the population, stagnate our economy as a consequence. Um, and, uh, you know, and then, of course, on top of that, you had uh, all the rhetoric around uh, immigration and, uh, and the fear of the other, which was stoked up to such a fever for pitch in 2016. Um, and was the, really the backdrop to Joe Cox's murder. So I'm not quite sure. We don't know the we don't know the particular motivations of the individual who carried out or allegedly carried out this particular attack. Um, there's suggestions that he's uh, connected to uh, uh, to religious extremism. Um, so you know the the precise cause could be could be myriad. Um, and could be, in some respects, completely removed from all of the causes that I, I've alluded to earlier. Um, you know, would, I, I suppose the question is, would, if, if it turns out to be, uh, you know, if this turns out to be a religious fanatic, the, I suppose the question is, how much has that got to do with the dehumanization of politicians that we've just discussing is this something that would have been possible in the in the 1980s or the 1990s or you know indeed um where, in an iron bevan's time is this or is this something which is now unique and, and could be 
or could become a more modern trend, uh, Bradley? Yeah, and I mean, in, in terms of the specific attack, I'm very hesitant to, to make any comments around that because um, obviously it's an ongoing investigation and, and all the rest of it. So uh, wish, uh, not wishing to, to be uh, sued, I'm not going to make any comments on the particular attack um, from a few days ago. I think... I don't know. I I I think um I think probably over the last I mean over the last forty years, but I think it's probably been really baked in over the last twenty or so. Um there is a, a deepening distrust of political institutions, I think you see across a lot of Western democracies. Um you know, that the, um there's a there's a real brand you know, my my research I, I would blame neoliberal politics that seeks to undermine um collective democratic decision making and, and supplant it with market forces instead but whichever whatever you you put the cause down to i i think you know there is in general a sense of democracy being in crisis across many western democracies and a, and a, a detach and a disengagement with many electorates and 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 their governments and and their democratic systems so i i think i don't know may, maybe that plays a role in not necessarily, you know, I don't think that can explain people murdering MPs necessarily. Um, but I think it perhaps explains maybe a, 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 a hardening towards MPs and, and maybe some of the, the, the um, you know, the, the general attitude towards MPs and the general sense MPs have of, of it being a less, uh, just a nastier environment in politics now. I think maybe that plays a part in it. And then specifically in the UK, I think the expenses scandal, like Diane Abbott said, and and I mean, absolutely, you know, you can't have that discussion about the political environment without talking about Brexit. I think Brexit, unlike any other issue in British politics, has led to such deep divisions. I think I think that they're fading a bit now, now that Brexit isn't as much as it was a, a, a live issue. And I think obviously COVID overtook it in the end as well. Um, but I think Brexit has divided British society like like no other issue for, for some time. And I think you know you, that there was some really nasty discourse um, around Brexit. Uh, and if anything from both sides, you know the stuff that some Remainers said about Leave voters w- was awful, and, and and vice versa. So um, yeah, I don't know if I've answered your question. I don't know if I can remember what your question was now. But I think I think we uh, I think those are maybe some of the reasons why we're in a a bit more of a. A nasty environment than we were in the past. I think also, you know, from my perspective, we're in late stage capitalism, and and crises are going to become ever more frequent. And also, the ability of capitalism to deliver is is declining. You know, if you if you look at wage growth and, and all sorts of other factors over the last forty years, um, you know, it it doesn't look good. And increasingly, people are are aware that the system isn't delivering for them in a way that. You know that the post-war generation could could see you know better prospects for them and then their children. Um, you know, our our generation is the first generation in in some time that can quite truthfully say that things will be worse off for us than it was than they were for our parents. So I think that there is also on top of all that other stuff I've just mentioned, I think there is a sense of that the system isn't working and and people's diagnosis of that comes through all sorts of different things some people you know come through that for a, for a far right far right lens and and, and blame migrants and and the the, the, the politicians that, that support free movement and things others come to it uh, from a socialist analysis you know there's all different routes people can come at that from but i think there is a general sense of, of that 
this system isn't working. Um, and again, none, none of this excuses political violence, but you can understand why, why there might be a more hostile atmosphere around politics that maybe wasn't there in, in, in the 90s. Can we see this being used as, a, as an opportunity to uh, clamp down on things like the, the thing, uh, on social media uh, anonymity? Uh, and internet uh, anonymity, which is something that's been talked about a lot uh, in recent days. I think absolutely. Um, th this is something which is is quite on the agenda of of people like Priti Patel, um, and I think it's quite a part of her politics um, to hold people to account to have more restrictions uh, on the freedoms of the internet. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting uh, about how holding more more individuals to account rather than um, looking at the actual causes of the issue, which um, which you have been so uh, Bradley so eloquently put um, in some of his, his words there. Um, yeah, it, it's going to be interesting moving forward. I think it's something that's definitely on the agenda of of the government, um, and I think it's going to be something which is quite a contentious issue as well. Because um, there's a lot of uh, pushback in terms of uh, restricting the internet and internet anonymity. It's quite an important, uh, well, it's a it's a fundamental feature of the internet, uh, quite fundamentally in how it was made and, and how it was set up. So it would be quite interesting how it would work in a in a globalized society as well. Uh, whether we'd just be uh, like a lone country to do that, uh, and how it would work interacting with other people on the internet. Um, obviously, one of the fundamental features of the internet is that it's it's kind of all-reaching. Um, there are no kind of borders to it, so it, it's something to keep an eye on, and uh, something I'm sure we'll talk about in the future. Um, just in terms of uh, how this has come about and and the polarization of society, I think it would be quite interesting to look at um, the impacts of of bills which have seek to um, restrict our freedoms, such as the recent crime bill, um, to to make uh, protests and, and democratic forms of, uh, of participating in democracy um, more um, kind of, yeah, more, more to the side. So kind of criminalizing, protesting, uh, anything that makes a, a racket or is deemed a public nuisance kind of thing. It's all uh, it's all quite interrelated, but I think that's that might be something which has caused this kind of polarization because, uh, as Bradley was saying earlier, there's not as many uh, official channels to kind of use your it, to make make your voice heard uh, through democratic means. I'm not saying that's uh, a guarantee. I just thought it'd be quite something something quite interesting to look at. But no, I I don't see how internet anonymity or trying to suppress it is going to prevent attacks like this. I, I mean, I've seen today that the uh, the alleged perpetrator of this particular act um, had been mentioned to the security services sometime in 2014, uh, but had no other record basically in between those times. Um, so I, this is part of the point, isn't it? Someone with a completely clean, clean record could commit an act like this who isn't being watched, security services, unless you're going to expand them massively, 
can't be watching everyone all the time. Even even algorithms can't be used to watch everyone uh, all of the time, and people will find a way around them. All your my my feeling has always been when it comes to things like the porn ban, for instance, which obviously turned out to be entirely unenforceable anyway. Um, my feeling with those sorts of things is that all they end up doing is making the internet less accessible for people who really kind of need it, um, who might not have knowledge of things like VPNs and uh, uh, and various, you know, and encryption and so on. Um, and uh, internet anonymity is really useful, especially for people who are vulnerable who are looking for uh, advice you know, talk you know talk LGBT people in particular people you mentioned the global society as it were people in other countries who are looking for help for aid people in Afghanistan for instance might you know need uh, internet anonymity it's uh, it just seems fundamentally stupid and I mean my my hope, in a way, is if they do try and implement measures to make people more visible online, uh, it will be as unenforceable as the as the porn ban was. Um, but I don't think it will. It it can't stop someone just picking up a knife, going to a surgery, um, and then and then murdering a politician. That's that's the blunt truth. And and I think you know. And obviously, I'm a politician myself. I'm not an MP. I'm, I'm a councillor. But I, you know, I, I'm a little more concerned than I was previously about going to my surgeries. And it's not going to stop me doing it because I've got a public duty to go. And MPs will probably feel the same way because it's the only opportunity you know, that um, you have to talk with your constituents. I have to say from personal experience, indeed, the experiences of MP, uh, MPs as well is that they don't tend to be particularly well-attended events, uh, regrettably, in our depoliticized society. But nevertheless, you know, very often you'll have people come to them who are quite vulnerable and really need that one-to-one -one connection uh, with you. And that's the real value of of, of a of a uh, political surgery, I think, uh, is uh, is to have that one to one connection with constituents um, that needs to be uh, that needs to be protected. Uh, I think I, I really hope it doesn't become the norm that you have armed guards at surgeries. I don't think it will be the case at at my level, at councillor level. I don't think I don't think a local councillor we're important of course, but I don't think we're important enough for someone to be able to justify killing us, right? I think I think the focus is probably very much on MPs. Um, I fear it trickling into into generalised political violence. I, I really hope I can't see it happening, um, but if even if the focus is on is on MPs, you know, a policeman standing outside with with a, a, a rifle, I can't see it. A concealed weapon, who knows? It, it's it's very difficult to tell. Um, 
but I suppose that I suppose that 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 question then is do things really need to change from a security point of view um, or are we only talking about some kind of change to the public discourse and you know if it is about public discourse what can we what can we really do about it because as i say it's not the politicians necessarily who are who are the problem it is that it's very definitely uh, the media and i think i think there's a certain irony i suppose in that we're now talking about suppression of the online world and nothing is really going to be done about newspapers about um television you know legacy media essentially um so maybe that is the future battle line i mean maybe this discussion hopefully in a way this discussion will be pointless and we'll never have a political media um political murder uh, in this country again but i i am I'm, I'm struggling to see how things are going to change uh, if if it is entirely reliant on on the British media uh, changing their ways. What do you think, Bradley? Just to come in, I, I I don't think we can completely let politicians off the hook for the discourse in the country. Um, it, it's some absolutely disgusting things that have come out of the mouths of UKIP um, and, uh, and Tory politicians. Over, over migrants um, and over issues around Brexit that have um, that I think have absolutely fueled a more divisive, uh, more hostile political culture, um, and I would also say plenty of politicians in the Tory Party and actually the Labour Party have absolutely contributed to the to the the poisonous atmosphere around Jeremy Corbyn's leadership um, and and have helped fuel that sort of frenzy around. Corbyn as an individual as well, so I don't, I don't think it's fair to to completely let uh, politicians off the hook around around um, the the uh, increasing hostility in, in political culture and, and language in this country. I, I think absolutely there are some politicians that have, have got plenty of blame to share um, in that as well. Well, maybe that's just that. Perhaps that's it then. <laughs> We we need to encourage. I mean, are we are we just asking our MPs to be nicer uh, to one another, or you know, and we then sort of is it just is it just the dehumanisation of others, or is it also the dehumanisation? of other politicians that's the problem yeah i i mean i think it's both isn't it um i think absolutely um as a minimum we should and, and you know and this sadly it should go without saying but politicians should be well when you're talking about entire groups of people right you, you should you, some of the language that you see and, and you're right it's the media the daily mail and the sun but it is various politicians as well the language, used, and not even just the language, actually, but the, the policy outcomes. You know, you've got this week, you've got Tory politicians 
saying that um, effectively we should let migrants drown in the sea. Um, you know, what does that do to to how people view other people in this country that might be recent migrants? When you've got your government saying it's okay to let them drown, you know, how how do how on earth do you try and maintain a civil political debate when you've got senior politicians saying that sort of thing on national television? Um, so I think absolutely as a minimum, politicians need to seriously think about the language they use about any any group in society and also the policy outcome, you know, the outcome of policies that they put forward and what, what that does. Because it's not just words that dehumanise people, you know, it's actions and it's policy outcomes that can dehumanise people as well. Um, and yeah, I think, I mean, sure, like, I mean, it sounds a bit sort of bland and a bit wishy-washy to say it, but in general, if MPs could be nicer to each other and the media be more considerate in how it reports on issues, that would, that would be nice as well. Um, as I said, I, I mean, I think there are times when it's okay to, to call, uh, as, as Angelina did, to, to refer to a, a particular Tory as scum for something they've done. Um, that's not something I'm going to lose sleep over. But that's very different to the to the sustained wall of abuse that, that some figures such as Jeremy Corbyn have seen um, in, in their time you know, in, in office. So, yeah, uh, yeah, there, there's my take on it. Okay. Okay. Um, so, sh- but shouldn't people like Angela Rayner therefore be, you know, leading by example? I think that's that's the counterpoint, isn't it? I mean, you say you're not going to lose any sleep over it. Of course not, because she's on your side and she's attacking the other side. Um. Well, I think I think Angela. I mean, Angela sort of stuck to her guns, didn't she? I think she explained it quite well. She said, you know, from the sort of community that she's from, it, it's quite it's par for the course to you know, to to say what someone's doing is sort of scummy behaviour, or you know, they're they're, they're being scummy. Um, and, you know that I I don't have an issue with that. Maybe it's the particular language. Maybe you know, maybe it's a specific case. But I don't have a problem with that. There's lots of things that Tories do that are very scummy. Is there a is there a big gap then? I suppose between casually calling someone scum and saying that uh, if you are in a dinghy coming to these shores, we're going to shoot you. I mean, yes, there's a world of difference between those two things, isn't there? Yeah, and that's the big practical difference that people need to understand when it comes to political discourse. Uh, in that, it's not just about politeness. It's about actions as much as it is about words, and I, and I think as well with like if you, if you call someone scum or you say what they've done is scummy, someone that someone that reads that or hears that is going to have a negative opinion of the person you you've said it about. But that's very different to, for instance, the media essentially calling Jeremy Corbyn uh, either a terrorist sympathizer, or I'm sure there's times when people got close to calling him a terrorist himself. You know, um, that if someone hears that, then they may actually hate. Jeremy Corbyn, you know, they may actually see him as a threat to British democracy, which many people did. So there's, again, you know, you need to think about what impact will my words have on the people hearing or, or, or reading them. Um, and I, I think again, those two examples, that again, I think the impact that's going to have on people hearing or reading them is going to be very different. Yeah, and, and I, th- I think it's about educating people as much as anything else to understand how 
what politicians mean when they're talking about such things. You know, dog whistles are a, a huge part of our uh, discourse now. Um, and I think, uh, as I said before, you know, if you call a person, like people call Jeremy Corbyn a threat to democracy, th this can be juxtaposed quite completely with these two murders. And it can be, um, I think it can be compared quite directly actually to the government's attempts to, for instance, control the internet and also to to lock up and uh, and uh, turn away and shoot migrants. Because I think as, as Tony Benn, um, to paraphrase Tony Benn, if you look at how governments treat those people who are not those citizens as refugees and, uh, and migrants are, then it's an indication of how they would treat you if they thought they could get away with it. Um, and I think, therefore, it's about educating the public that, you know, these people really don't care about human life. Um, and that's really the scumminess of their nature, not their humanity. Um, because David Amos was human. And he was uh, imperfect in many ways. But there are much, much bigger policies in play being enacted by uh, the British government that are leading to the dehumanisation of both, uh, of, of all other humans to whom you do not agree. Uh, and that discourse needs to be challenged, I think, um, by saying that uh, it is the actions of the government which should treat people uh, as human and that really is what we should be striving for i suppose <laughs> an awkward conclusion to get to i suppose but uh, do you think we're at a dialectic on this now <laughs> i don't know about dialectic but i think um I, I mean, it's it's a difficult topic, isn't it? There's lots of things to balance, um, you know, civility and, and security, and the, the right to strongly express opinions and and to strongly protest things. There's lots of things in the mix there, um, but I think I think I think it's positive. Obviously, the events that have led to us having this conversation aren't uh, are tragic, but I think it's positive that the country is at least scrutinising some of these things. Um, yeah. We can only hope that we come to the to good conclusions. Yeah, and we will know more about what this individual thought, I suppose, in the coming weeks and months. Um, so, yeah, sober thought, but uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll I'm sure we will be discussing it further um, as as time goes on. Uh, as I say, I. I hope this doesn't lead to uh, a rise in authoritarianism in the UK. It's difficult to see, you know, how uh, the the internet will be policed, but I think we should be probably concerned about um, some of our democratic institutions and how they might be affected as well. But we'll be there to monitor it. And, um, yeah, so I think on that note,
it's goodbye from me. And uh, goodbye from Ollie. Goodbye, everyone. Take care. And Bradley. Goodbye, folks. Stay safe. Stay safe. Join the union and we'll see you next time.